morning, picking up with verse 37. I'll be reading through verse 44. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. And he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed kings, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. P.T. Barnum was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. And he once invited Spurgeon to speak at his traveling service. He made every concession to get Spurgeon to do so. He made very attractive offers. Barnum said that he would provide the musical talent unless Spurgeon wanted to provide his own. He would provide any equipment, any manpower that Spurgeon desired. Spurgeon could speak as long as, or as short as he wished. Then, for a preacher, is very attractive. <laughs> there was only one basic stipulation. The Barnum Circus Association would take the gate receipts and pay Spurgeon $1,000 per lecture. That was a very generous offer Many would certainly have said, what a wonderful opportunity to reach people with the gospel. As you can imagine, that was not Spurgeon's response. Spurgeon would not even consider connecting the gospel to a circus. Knowing it would be wrong to join hands with the world in that way, he sent a reply to Mr. Barnum. Dear Mr. Barnum, thank you for your kind invitation to lecture in your circus tent in America. <laughs> you will find my answer in Acts 13.10. Very sincerely yours, Charles Spurgeon. If Barnum had looked up Acts 13.10, he would have found these words spoken by Paul to Elymas the magician. You who are full of all deceit and fraud, 
You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not stop making crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now that sounds, of course, very similar to words that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees in regard to their hypocrisy. In John 8, 44, Jesus said this, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus accused the Pharisees of being children of the devil in part because he is the father of lies and the Pharisees were liars. Now, certainly they lied with their lips. You see that repeatedly through the ministry of Jesus. We saw it when they accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan a number of weeks ago. But you see it throughout his ministry. You certainly see it throughout his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion and his resurrection. But they were also liars in the way that they lived. Claiming to be holy all the while, not knowing the God they claimed to be obeying. Claiming to obey the law, all the while establishing their own law and falsely calling it God's law. That kind of lying is what we typically refer to as hypocrisy. Hypocrisy can be defined as the practice of professing standards, beliefs, etc., contrary to one's real character or actual behavior. And the religious leaders of Jesus' day had substituted true godliness with spiritual hypocrisy. And because Jesus always spoke the truth, he spoke very clearly and boldly against that spiritual hypocrisy which he saw in the Pharisees. The analysis of this incident of Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees and lawyers in Luke chapter 11 warns us of the danger of spiritual hypocrisy. Let's see how this warning comes. First thing we see here is in verse 37 and 38. And that's the setting of the rebuke. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. Now, remember what has already been happening. People had been demanding a sign from Jesus to show that he was indeed the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. But Jesus said that his death, burial, and resurrection would be the only sign that they would receive. The sign of Jonah, you'll remember. What people needed was not another sign. Jesus had been given plenty of signs throughout his entire ministry. What they needed was to believe what God said. They needed to believe God's word. They needed to believe what Jesus said and what he communicated through his own life and through his own work. Jesus was giving people plenty of things regarding the gospel, but the blindness of their sins was keeping them from believing what they had 
So Luke then says that while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to lunch. So he goes in, he reclines at the table, as he often did with unbelievers. And Luke notes that the Pharisee was astonished that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. Which I suppose tells us something about Mary's imperfect mother. This washing, of course, wasn't what we're accustomed to. Parents tell their children to wash their hands before dinner to get the dirt off their hands. We want our kids to wash their hands for hygienic reasons. In Jesus' day, however, the Pharisees taught that people needed to wash their hands for religious reasons. In Jesus' day, people needed to wash so as to be ceremonially prepared for this meal. But these weren't biblical laws we're talking about. These are laws created by the rabbis and the Pharisees. And they were passed on to the people as if they had been sanctioned by God. And in this way, these religious leaders bound the consciences of the people. Well, Jesus was having none of that. People wanted to wash ceremonially before meals. They were free to do it, but it wasn't an obligation, and Jesus was not going to give in to that idea and give the impression that through his own observance of these ceremonies, that this was somehow an obligation upon God's people. Well, Jesus deliberately, it seems, at numerous points throughout the gospel, breaks the laws of the Pharisees. You see this all the time when the Pharisees come to him to challenge him in regard to the Sabbath. Jesus isn't breaking the Mosaic law. He's breaking the tradition of the Pharisees, of the rabbis. And he's doing the same thing here again, and he's doing it in order to teach them a very important lesson, and in order to warn the people of the danger of imitating that spiritual hypocrisy. In other places in his ministry, Jesus warns his disciples and warns the people about imitating the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees were adding so much to the Word of God. People need to be careful of those kinds of things. So that's the setting of the rebuke. Let's look at the rebuke itself. During the course of lunch, Jesus addresses his rebuke to the Pharisee. The Lord said to him, verse 39, Now, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside you you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and ruin every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. 
Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogue and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. Now, Jesus issues a fourfold rebuke here. The first is a general rebuke, and then he gets progressively more specific as he goes on. He first rebukes them for their duplicity. And it's a very foolish kind of duplicity in response to the Pharisees' astonishment that Jesus did not wash his hands before dinner. He opens up on them. He goes not to their ceremony, but to their heart. You clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. The Pharisees are only concerned with the externals. They didn't pay attention to their own hearts. And this is something we need to, to understand, because if you were a first century Jew, looking at the Pharisees, you would not have looked upon them in the way that Jesus describes them. People had to be taught to understand who the Pharisees really were. The Pharisees were, in fact, held in very high regard. They were looked upon as very godly, holy, religious people. But Jesus can see through the externals to the heart. So Jesus isn't fooled, even though everybody else may have been. We sometimes have this problem in the church. You come into a church, and you know, it's a church with all kinds of rules. And you wonder where these rules come from, because you've never seen them in the Bible. But somehow, all of these rules and regulations and laws have grown up in this church. And this church has come to view true Christianity through the lens of these man-made rules. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus is continually calling them out on it. The Pharisee paid attention to what others could observe. But he did not pay attention to his inner spiritual condition before God. J.C. Ryle said this, Our Lord points out the absurdity of teaching such of attaching such importance to the mere cleansing of the body, while the cleansing of the heart is overlooked. He reminds his host that God looks at the inward part of us, the hidden heart, far more than at our skin. Some of you may be familiar with uh, a man named Warren Wearsby. He was a very popular preacher at the end of the uh, middle, end of the 20th century. In his autobiography, he writes about his first building project as a young pastor in Indiana. He and the church's building committee were working with a church architect. And at one of the committee meetings, Wearsby 
says he learned a good lesson about architecture and theology, something that he had not been taught at seminary. And I can attest to the fact that these things aren't taught <laughs> in seminary. In this meeting, he asked the architect, why do we need such an expensive high ceiling in the auditorium? We're not building a cathedral. Why not just build an auditorium with a flat roof and then put a church facade in the front of the building? And Wiersbe writes that in a very quiet, patient voice, this architect replied, Pastor, the building you construct reflects what a church is and what a church does. You don't use, you, you don't use facades on churches to fool people. That's for carnival sideshows. The outside and the inside must agree. It's a good description of what our lives ought to be like so that we do not fall into the sin of hypocrisy. The outside and the inside need to agree. Good question to ask. Is that true of us? Is there a difference between what you do and who you are? You come to worship, you give money, you serve in some kind of ministry, and you call yourself a Christian. But are you even regenerate? Lots of people do that. And they are on their way to hell. Because they do all of those things. They look the right way, but they don't know Jesus. Are you just before God? Is your outside a true reflection of what's on the inside? We just saw that in the psalm that we read earlier. Here is a man who has lived his life, and now he's come to the end of his life. He is in old age. As he writes this psalm, it is a reflection of what is inside him. It is a man who has spent his life Seeking to bring the outside of his life into harmony with the inside of his life. So that there's no difference. So that when people see who we are, they know who we are. Beware of this kind of pharisaical, foolish duplicity. This is the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is comprised of sinners who struggle. It's comprised of those who struggle to live godly lives. Who struggle to be pleasing to their God. Who fail constantly. And so when we come together, because that is true of every one of us, there is no need to put on the mask. There is no need to try to impress our brothers and sisters 
with how well we're doing and how wonderful our life is, how godly we are. What we need to do is to be real. Say, yeah, I struggle. This sin in my life is something I can't get over. It's something I need your help with. I need you to pray with me. I need you to come alongside of me. I need you to help me through this. I don't want anybody to think that I've got it all together because I don't. And if that's what I'm focused on, trying to get people to believe something about me that is not true, <coughs> then nothing is going to change in regard to who I really am. Because I'm focused on the wrong thing. Frankly, I... I never understand pastors who get up in their pulpit and seek to portray themselves as having it all together. That's, that has always seemed to me to be a very dangerous thing. Because eventually the reality is going to come. Eventually people are going to see who you really are. And won't they be disappointed? Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather you know me. I'm not who I want to be. I struggle and I fail. And I have disappointed many of you. And I'm sorry, but that's me. And it'll happen again. Unless the Lord takes me now. <laughs> There's, there's got to be 
a sentence that I can speak that is going to fix everything. And I never find it. Because there isn't it. You come to your brothers and sisters for help, and they might not be able to fix your problem, but they can walk with you through it. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. But we can't do that unless we're real with one another. So beware the duplicity of the Pharisees. Beware also their heartless legalism. This is another thing that Jesus rebukes them for. You see that in verse 42. Woe to you Pharisees, you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard the justice and the love of God. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. That word woe can also be translated as alas. It's a word used to warn of danger and the nearness of judgment. Jesus warned the Pharisees heartless legalism because they majored on minor things. They paid their tithes to the last detail, but they ignored justice and love. Interestingly enough, while tithing was commanded for believers in the Old Testament, there was no biblical command anywhere in regard to tithing on mint and rue and every herb. That was another one of their man-made laws, which they sought to impose on God's people. In the midst of their obsessive arithmetic regarding tithing, the Pharisees lost the joy of simply giving generously. But worse than that, they didn't deal justly with their neighbors. And they didn't really love God. Since they didn't love God, they didn't love their neighbor either. This is the heart of hypocrisy, keeping the letter of the law in one or two minor areas while at the same time neglecting the big things that matter more to God. You'll remember Jesus dealt with them about this very issue in regard to their parents. They took their money and they devoted it to God, all so that they could not use it to care for their aged parents. Every now and then you come across an article about all the strange laws that somewhere remain on the books. They're a sober reminder that legalism does not necessarily have to be religious. In fact, legalism by its very nature has nothing to do with the actual law of God found in Scripture. That's why it's legalism. Let me give you a few of these. These are all laws passed by secular supposed governments about how people ought to conduct themselves in the church. In Alabama, it is illegal to wear a fake mustache that causes laughter in the church. <laughs> I read that, and if you're a Met fan, you'll get this. Bobby Valentine popped into my head. Bobby Valentine, when he was the manager of the Mets, he was kicked out of the game. And if you're a manager, you're kicked out of the game, you can't be sitting in the dugout. He put on a fake mustache and came back into the dugout. Didn't fool anyone. In Alabama, he could not come into a church. In Delaware,
sympathy with some of these laws. <laughs> in Texas, it's illegal to go to church in disguise. And in West Virginia, no member of the clergy can tell jokes or humorous stories from the pulpit. Oops. <laughs> Someone once criticized Spurgeon after a service for doing that. And his response was, Madam, if you knew how much I held back, you'd be proud of me. <laughs> We've got to be careful not to make the same mistakes the Pharisees did <coughs> to get things out of proportion. We've got to give generously of our finances to God. And we must also love God and treat our neighbor with justice. But at the root, behind all of that, is the necessity of understanding the difference between the law of God, as it is revealed to us in his word, and the law of men, as they wish to impose it upon us. There are two dangers as we come into the scripture, and as we speak about Christian morality or ethics. One is that we come to the scripture and we ignore what the scripture actually says. We rationalize our way around it. Right? On that extreme is licentiousness. The other extreme is legalism. We're going to impose our own rules and regulations upon. Both of those extremes are evil. And so what we seek to do here in this place is to open up the Word. And when the Word says, Thou shalt not, we will proclaim that boldly, clearly, and directly. But if the Scripture does not say that about a given issue, neither will we. Yeah. We do not wish to place a burden on the people of God, which God has not placed upon them. Well, Jesus also rebukes the Pharisee for their pride. See that in verse 43, Woe to you, Pharisees! For you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. The chief seats at the synagogue were the seats out in front facing the congregation. So just, you know, think of a communion Sunday. You've got those who serve at the table sitting up here facing you. That is how the synagogue was structured. And there would be those for whom those chief seats were reserved. Not because Anybody was serving, but because it was a place of prominence. And everybody wanted those seats. Because the further back you went in the room, the less esteemed you were held. The advantage of the seats up front was that people could be seen by everybody. 
The more exaggerated the respect of the greetings that the Pharisee receives in the streets, the better he was pleased. They desired to be recognized. They longed for people to come and tell them how wonderful they were, how godly they were. Pride is not something reserved for the Pharisees, of course. It's something we all struggle with. In some ways, it's the root of every other sin. Certainly it was when Lucifer fell, as it was in the garden. Go back and read Genesis chapter 3. Why were Adam and Eve tempted? Because they were told that if they ate this fruit, they would be like God, knowing good and They had grown, even in that short conversation with the serpent, resentful that there was something held back from them. We had a change there. I deserve that. Whatever it may be. Pride and covetous go along very closely, don't they? We compare ourselves to others. Who made the highest grade, who made the most money, who drives the nicest car, who lives in the nicest house. Sadly, we bring that same pride into the church. We want people to notice us and what we do for the Lord. Even if we say that we don't care for recognition, we secretly delight when people praise us. We want people to notice our service. We want people to say something about how well we did something in the church. I like it when people come to me after the service and tell me how much they appreciate the preaching. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I get an inch or two taller. <laughs> Everybody struggles with pride. And it's all vanity. Jesus shows us a different way to live. He teaches us to be faithful in service, to be willing to take the lowest place. To give other people credit, to make our sacrifices in secret, to wait patiently for him to put us in whatever position he desires us to be. To care nothing for the opinion of others, but only for his. And so what I wish was true, and what I pray is increasingly true throughout my life is that when I stand in the pulpit to open his word and to proclaim his word, my sole concern is what God thinks about me, yes. not what you think about me. I appreciate your encouragement. I really do. But there are techniques that can be used to get slaps on the back from people. There are no techniques which will elicit approval from God. 
Beware of vain pride. And finally, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for their false teaching. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. Phil Rankin tells the following story. He says, when I was in junior high school, I traveled to England with a group of students from Wheaton College. We spent a day and night near Salisbury Cathedral. That evening, some of us wandered onto the cathedral grounds and started to play frisbee. I'm reading this on the ugly Americans. <laughs> Soon, a couple of local residents walked over and told us off in proper English. <laughs> we were playing in a graveyard, they said, and we needed to cease and desist. As we looked around, we saw that there were indeed some old flat gravestones, although they were so covered with grass that we had hardly noticed. If they had been Israelites, touching an unmarked grave would have rendered them ceremonially impure for a full week. According to Numbers 19.16, anyone who touched a grave was unclean for seven days. So in order to help Israelites not touch graves unknowingly, the people whitewash them regularly. That way, people could see the graves and avoid touching them. Reagan couldn't understand what the problem was. Obviously, nobody really cared about these graves. You could hardly see them. Everything had grown up over them so much. But, ancient Israel, it was something that people took very seriously. Jesus likens the Pharisees to unmarked graves. People assumed that their religious leaders were faithful to God's truth and that they could trust them, but their teaching was the way of death and not the way of life. So they were like unmarked graves, leading people astray and away from God, making people unclean. Are we doing that? by what we teach about God with our own lives. Will anyone not be in heaven because we have taught error? No. God will save whom he will save. But that doesn't mean that we take our responsibility to teach the truth lightly. We need to teach our children Correctly, We need to teach the world the true gospel. We need to warn one another about false teachers out there. And we need to be on guard for false teachers in here. Paul's warning to the Ephesian elders was that wolves will rise up even among them seeking to devour the flock. Among the elders, nothing can be taken for granted. Joe understands. If I stand up in this pulpit one day and start to preach falsely, then something will need to be done. I will need to be first confronted and called to repentance. And if I refuse to repent, that this church needs to put me out on my ear. Mm -hmm. 
Beware of false teaching. It is what brings the Pharisees to condemnation. So having analyzed the incident of Jesus' pronouncement of woes upon the Pharisees, what do we do? Here's what we do. We seek after true godliness, not simply the appearance. We avoid the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Let's leave this passage with the words of R.C. Rod. With a settled determination to watch and pray against hypocrisy in religion. Whatever we are as Christians, let us be real, thorough, genuine, and sincere. Let us abhor all insincerity and affectation in the things of God as that which is utterly loathsome in Christ's eyes. We may be weak and erring and frail and come far short of our aims and desires. But at any rate, if we profess to believe in Christ, let us be true. Let us let us be true to Christ. Let us be done with spiritual hypocrisy. Let us live truly for Jesus all the way from the inside out until he brings us home. Father, this is what we pray. This is what we desire. We cannot do it on our own. We have no power, Father, but by your Spirit. Let us make a start. And let us continue until the end. When you call us to yourself for Jesus returns, when all of the work, when all of the effort is behind us, and we will, Father, finally be like Christ, with no sin, with no hypocrisy, with no pride, we long for that day, Father, may it come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.